Well, we are finishing up our study on biblical manhood and womanhood today. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've been trying to learn what the Scripture has to say about what the essence of biblical manhood and womanhood looks like in our day-to-day lives, what it looks like in our homes, and what it looks like in the church, and then last week, what it looks like in the world. And uh, this week, I want to address some potential questions that may come up as you discuss this sort of idea with other people who are well-intentioned people, people who may even see the Scriptures as their authority, yet disagree with you. They, they uh, believe in the egalitarian view, that is, that men and women are equal in every respect and, and the role distinctions that have been set up are actually a result of the fall rather than something that were set up before the fall. So I want to address some of the claims that or questions, condemnatory questions really, that come from those sort of people and that will help you, I think, get more solidified in your understanding of this topic and be able to address any questions that come up when you uh, talk with other people and help disciple them. All right, so let me pray this morning and we'll uh, get started. Father, we thank You for Jesus and we do agree with what we have just sung that that He is fairer than all of the fairest, that, that the greatest things that the world has to offer and that Satan has to to um, to give to us in response to following Him are in, are nothing in comparison to our Savior Jesus and what He has to offer, and so we give ourselves fully to Him in honor of His name, exalting Your name, Father, and we want to praise You in our worship of You uh, this morning as we sing to You and as we uh, reflect on Your Word, as we listen to You. And as we respond to it, may you help us in every way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I've uh, put there for you about ten questions or ten objections and um, to, uh, to complementarianism. Okay, complementarianism, again, is that men, man and woman are made in the image of God, equal in worth, equal in value, but different in function different in role, that man has a responsibility as leader, head, authority. Woman has a responsibility as helper, as the complementer of her husband. Okay, that's with the E, not with with an I. If you know your English, you understand that joke. All right, number one, isn't mutual submission biblical? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll show you why this question comes up. Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, because we've been talking about a woman's responsibility to submit to her husband. And especially, we talk about Ephesians 5.22 where it says, Wives, submit or be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And um, But what we overlook often with this view of complementarianism is verse 21 that says, someone read that for us, 521. Okay, so you're saying wives ought to be subject to their husbands, but the previous verse said be subject to one another. And so isn't 
mutual submission really the biblical model that yes, wives should be in submission to their husband, but it means something different than what we've been saying because husbands apparently from this verse are also supposed to be submissive to their wives. And in that case, does that break apart these roles that we've talked about, man as head and woman as helper? And your blank is no. Okay. Very simply, no. That's uh, that's incorrect. Um, and I've mentioned this several times before, but my understanding of that verse, verse 21, is that it is a summary of what is going on in the next section okay so if you look at your text quickly browse it verses 22 to 23 or 22 to 33 wives be subject to your own husbands okay or 22 to 24 then it says husbands love your wives nowhere does it say husbands are to be subject to their wives and then verse 6 children obey your parents or chapter 6 excuse me chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 And obviously, none of us would say that fathers are supposed to submit to their children, right? Or to obey their children. No, no one would say that. And the same thing is true in the next section, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Employees, be obedient to your employers. No one says that employers are supposed to submit to their employees. And so what I, I understand this to be, verse 21, is actually a summary of what He's going to to say, rather than saying, be subject to one another, the idea is some of you submit to another. In your position, whatever position you're in, submit to this other person. So that could mean that a husband would have to submit to his, his boss, his authority, right? It's not that he has no responsibility to submit. It's just that he doesn't have a responsibility to submit to his wife. And that's not what the text says. All right, next. Um, so we could write it this way. Submit one to the other. That's the idea of 521. Submit one to the other. All right, now look at 523. Chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, many well-meaning scholars argue that the word translated as head, for the husband is the head of the wife, really means not something like authority or leader, but rather source. Okay, And so in that sense, it doesn't carry the connotations of authority. It's just, uh, it's just that He is the source. But there are two reasons why we should understand that the husband being the head of the wife actually does mean authority. The first reason is because in there... Paul is giving a reason for wives to submit. Look at verse 22 again. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord for or because... Why? Because the husband is the head. Now, it wouldn't make sense for Paul to say, wives, be subject to your own husbands because your husband is the source of you. Okay? The idea is the, that your husband is the authority over you, and that's the way that the word is used in other parts of the New Testament. The word head um, actually does carry the connotation of authority and leadership. The second reason is actually a better reason, and that's from the second part of the verse. Look at the second part of the verse with me. As Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. 
Okay, the text also says that Christ is the head of the church and that the church therefore submits to him. So here's how we can look at the logical argument here. We as a church ought to submit ourselves to Christ because Christ is our, not just our source, but he is our authority, right? That's why we submit ourselves to him. We, we put ourselves underneath his authority. And that's the, that's the point of comparison. In fact, the reason that there are marriages is not for the sake of you and me, ultimately, okay? Or it's not the, for the sake of you and your spouse. It's ultimately for the sake of God making a picture of what it means for Christ to love his church and what it means for the church to submit to Christ. In other words, picture was made as a uh, I'm sorry, marriage was made as a picture, not as the final goal. That's why marriages will be done away with, right? Individual marriages in heaven because it's just a picture. It's just for a time so that we can see the relationship that ought to exist between Christ and his church. All right, so for those reasons we would disagree with those who say that head means only source. Are there any questions on those first two? Submit one to the other, and then um, you know the the man is the head of the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. Yeah, um, I mean, based on the right. Yeah, based on uh, if you look at the previous section there, um, verse 15. Be careful how you walk, making the most of your time. Um, Verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, but speak to one another in psalms. Verse 20. Always giving thanks to the Lord, even the Father, and so on. And uh, even if you look up farther in chapter 5, it seems to be with our relationship with other people within the church. And so in that way, we need to give up some of our preferences for the sake of someone else. So if that were the case, then then Paul would be saying, so be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be willing to give up some of your preferences for the sake of... But But my understanding of the word uh, submission or the word... This, the words that are translated be subject to is uh is is something more than that and that that husbands are never said to submit to their wives in the same way that wives are to submit to their husbands so if what you're saying is true that yes we should be willing to give up some of our preferences for the sake of our wives the word that we would use is not be subject to or the word we would use is not submission Okay, because there is a, an authority structure, like you mentioned, that there is a, um, a, a functional um, difference between a man and a woman, specifically within the marriage relationship. Eric?
Yeah, um, and and if you want see see that if you if you do it that way, then you have to. The the reason I wouldn't do that that way, Eric, is because of verse 25. It it nowhere says, "Husbands be subject to your wives." Okay, and ch- and fathers six four doesn't say you know obey your children or be subject to them. It seems to me that if you follow the the line of argument that Paul has, it is. Su- Wives, submit yourself. Be underneath the authority of your husband. Um, and so we could actually read the text this way. Verse 21, be subject one another to the fear of Christ, in the fear of Christ. Verse 22, wives, do this to your husbands. Be subject to them in the fear of Christ. Then chapter 6, verse 1, children, do this to your parents. Submit to them in the fear of Christ. Slaves, verse 5, do this to your masters. Submit to them in the fear of Christ. But but again, if if we're going to if we're going to um, if we're going to change the way that we think about the word subjection or be subject to, then we have to say that that um, six four to me six four means that fathers have to submit to their children, and I don't you know that that's the type of authority structure that God has set up, and these are. These are kind of laid out for us in three quick ways. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. Vicki? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good point. I I actually don't know. Um, I I didn't look at the word submission as it's used throughout the New Testament, but that's a good that's a good thing to do. But. Right, because and we would never say the opposite in verse 24, right? That Christ is subject to the church. Right, so you have that picture that carries over. If the church is supposed to be subject to Christ, verse 23 says, just as Christ is also the head, then that means that the wife also needs to be the same sort of role with regard to her husband. Okay, so that, yeah, I think 24 actually helps clear it up pretty well. Paul. Right. Yep. That's that's a good point because um, you know authority should never be done in that way and kind of a, a one-sided I don't care what you think type of uh, mentality. And we'll get to that here in just a second because there will be cases when husbands lead wives to do something that is um, foolish or sinful, and then they have to make a choice. You know, what am I going to do here, Trish?
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would agree with the concept. I'm not suggesting that wives shouldn't, you know, exhort their husbands to do what is right, but I don't agree with this this words being subject to or these words meaning that that was my point. So, yeah, I I agree with the concept that wives ought to be um actively involved within the marriage, uh but but ideally it should be the man that is um initiating the spiritual leadership he should be but that doesn't always happen because obviously we're all sinners and many of us are wretched sinners and so we need help from our wives to point us in the right direction all right should we remove gender distinctions okay galatians turn over to galatians chapter 3 galatians chapter 3 verse 28 if we have a verse like this in Galatians 3.28, then it sounds like Paul is removing gender distinctions. He's saying, you know, as far as the role distinctions that have been set up, and these egalitarians would say these were sinfully set up or as a result of the fall, therefore now in Galatians 3, because of Christ, those are all done away with. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Oh, let's look. start at 27 just to get the context. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, something that follows salvation, have clothed yourselves with Christ. So now that you're saved, here's what happens. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. So on the basis of this verse, can't we say that we must remove that we should remove the the distinction of roles that there are between a man and a woman? Um, now, what I want to be clear is that on this verse, Paul is saying that there is equality between man and woman. But notice notice the qualification there at the end of the verse. For you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. So here's how we could read the verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. There is neither slave nor free man in Christ Jesus. There's neither male nor female in Christ. Christ Jesus. So Paul's talking about within the context of salvation, that is, with regard to justification by faith, there's no distinction here. That one is better than the other. That faith apart from works um, removes all of those barriers, those distinctions. And so that there is now no longer um, there is no longer um, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man nor woman. Okay, that is that, that we all have the sta- same standing when it comes to our standing before Christ in salvation. Not one of us is better than the other. Okay? Not one of us has more rights before God. Um, that, 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 that's because salvation is by faith alone and in Christ alone. And so Paul's not wiping out gender distinctions. And we know that because. Paul still talks about in his letters, he talks to the Jews as Jews, even though they're Christian Jews. Or he talks to Gentiles as Gentiles. And he talks to slaves like we just saw in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks to slaves as slaves. That in your relationship with your master, make sure that you're 
serving them as to the Lord. And masters, he talks about them specifically. He doesn't say, you know, now these are all done away with. And the same thing is true with men and women. We still are men and women. We still have our functional roles. Those don't just go away at salvation. Um, and uh, the point is that we all are equal in in Christ. All right, number four. What about Priscilla and Aquila? Specifically Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Um, if you look throughout that passage, what you would find is that Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila almost in every case. When they are mentioned together, she is mentioned first. And we also know, let's turn there because um, it would be helpful just to see the text. I know many of you are familiar with this because we studied this on Wednesday night not too long ago. But I just want to show you that she actually was teaching a man here, and so we need to understand what's going on because it sounds like if she's teaching a man, Apollos, then why can't she teach in the church? Why can't she have an office in the church? Um, Verse 25 uh, speaking of Apollos, this man had been instructed. This is chapter 18, verse 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, when we studied through this, what I mentioned to you was that we have a compound verb here in the last part of verse 26. They, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and they, we could include Priscilla and Aquila, explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it wasn't that they took him aside, but Aquila did all the teaching, right? Did all all the explaining. And so if this is true, doesn't it show that, that women can actually teach men in the way of God. I mean, it seems to be that this is Aquila and Priscilla speaking specifically about the things of God, the ways of God, helping Apollos understand better what is going on about, I mean, because he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. He didn't understand all the implications of Christ being resurrected and so on. And so doesn't this kind of open the door for women to be pastors in the church? Now, first thing that we have to be clear about is that this was done in a private setting. This was not done in the meeting of a church. It wasn't that they got up in front of the synagogue where a lot of the believers would meet or in some other gathering within a house of, you know, a full full house of believers, but that but that it was a private meeting. Okay, do you see that? At the end of verse 26 or the middle it says they took him aside, probably Invited them, invited him over to their house, and then they talked about the ways of God to him. Okay, so we can't break down all of the the qualifications for pastor and say those are all thrown out the door because of one verse that says that these two took him aside and and explained to him the ways of God. And uh, I hope that you understand that throughout this course I have in no way um, uh, said that a woman cannot teach a man in a private setting. Okay? That is not... I don't, I don't think that that, that is uh, anything that the Scriptures teach. 
Um, there's nothing that says the scripture in the scripture that says that a husband and a wife can't visit an unbeliever, right? I mean, how could a woman actually ever evangelize, let's say, a man? Could she? I mean, she. I'm sorry. You have to go talk to your husband. You got questions about the gospel that I know and love, and that that I live. I can't tell you anything because I'm a woman. So you're going to have to wait till my husband. And what happens if she doesn't have a husband? Okay, or or what happens if her husband's an unbeliever? Can she not help an unbelieving man in the ways of God? And uh, obviously, I I hope you see the silliness of that idea. Um, so what what the scriptures are not doing? I hope you've seen that I'm not trying to set a, a make up a set of artificial rules that say that a woman you know can or cannot do something in a private personal interaction like this. Um, obviously, in those types of settings, she still needs to, I would suggest that Priscilla needs to honor her husband in that sort of setting, you know, not uh, usurping his authority in that setting, and that's obviously going to be a delicate matter, but, but the point is that this was done in private, and this no way promotes uh, some sort of public service, public leadership position on the part of a woman. Okay, what about her name being listed first? You see that in this text, and if you were to look in uh, even verse 18, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila, um, and I think several other times in Acts when they're mentioned together, she is mentioned first. So if she's mentioned first, doesn't that seem to suggest that she has some authority over him? And um, really, that's a very vague, um, a vague set of, of reasons, or, or that's a vague argument that that you a person would use luke may have mentioned her first because he wanted to honor the woman the various christian women you know by putting her name first that is that you know women are not just a secondary unimportant um, footnote to the the spread of the gospel but people like lydia you know and uh, and priscilla are actually vital to the gospel message being understood properly and and carried on okay so he so maybe in order to show that they're not a footnote like they were in jewish society right the what would the pharisees say i'm glad that i'm not a gentile or a woman uh you know so so they would they would uh pray this prayer every day and and love and exalt in their manness but um but maybe what Luke is doing by listening to her first is just saying, listen, we, there's no reason that we should not honor you know, godly women, just like the Proverbs 31 woman is honored by giving nearly a whole chapter to her. Or it could be that Luke just mentioned them in that order. We don't know exactly why. Um, maybe she was a well-known person among the readers of Luke and uh, Aquila was not. And so he mentioned her name first because they would all know her and then added on Aquila at the end. Yeah, I mean, she could have been a earlier and more uh, studied convert. Yeah, Greg? <laughs> Vicki? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so first doesn't always mean... Yeah, it's a good example. I'm sure we could find some other texts where, you know, one sinful human is listed before Jesus. And then obviously we wouldn't say that Jesus is, is less important or has less authority than that person. So, Paul. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you. She was not married to Paulus also. Okay. Yes. Yeah, certainly it must all be done in wisdom. You know, I, I wouldn't. Um, I, I mean, I would not um, be happy if my wife, you know, wanted to have private conversations with an unbelieving man. You know, um, again, this is within a context where, um, you know, he is already there. It, her husband is there, and so it's completely appropriate for her to explain the things of God. And, you know, that doesn't mean that my wife can't have any conversations, like maybe she's at the grocery store and there's a male uh, uh, person at the cash, re- cash register. Well, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you because I'm married, that sort of thing. But obviously, if it's a private setting between my wife and an unbelieving man, um, that that's where you got just got to use wisdom. Okay, What would make sense? From a a God honoring perspective, and a, you know, and obviously, hopefully, she would talk to me about that. You know, I, I've I have this person that I'm interacting with, maybe at the library or something, and and it seems like he's looking for the things of God. And what what do you think I ought to do, type thing? So yeah, I think we ought to keep that in in the context of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, a uh, matter of wisdom. Number five. Okay, don't you think that all these texts that we've studied are simply a temporary compromise to a cultural status quo? While the main thrust of Scripture is really towards a, a leveling of gender roles. Okay? Because um, if we're honest, the Scripture does sometimes seek to regulate undesirable relationships without condoning them as permanent. Uh, uh, permanent ideals. So, for example, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, um, Moses permitted to you divorce. So Jesus is talking to them about how they ought to handle divorce, but he's not condoning, condoning divorce. So he's actually trying to remove those previously uh, set up status quos within the culture and say that's not the way it ought to be. This is the way it was set up. You know, it was supposed to be one man for one woman for one lifetime, Genesis 2.24. Um, so he's, he's trying to remove people from the, the wrong ideas of the culture, and that was a bad thing. And then, and then what about you know, Paul's instruction to slaves? Um, we could say the same thing about Paul's instructions to slaves to obey their masters, even though Paul 
longed for every slave to be received by his master, right? In Philemon 1.16, he says, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. And so, Paul's not condoning the relationship of a master over his slave. He's just saying those things really exist within our culture, so let's learn to work with those. And at some point, obviously, we're going to remove those those wrong cultural distinctions. Um, and so, in that way, isn't this distinction that we've set up of man... Okay, I'm, I'm speaking from an egalitarian perspective. That man is supposed to be over his wife. Aren't those things that are just cultural status quo that we need to break away from? Doesn't the Scripture do that? Um, but... I hope what you've seen in this series of classes is that from the very beginning, um, the way that it was supposed to be is that man was supposed to be over his wife. And that since the fall, it actually, it, it actually pulled that responsibility farther apart. Okay, farther apart where the woman wanted to be over the man. And that's, in fact, part of the curse. And so what the Scriptures have done since the fall is instead of trying to break those distinctions and try to level the ground there where man and women are equal in all respects and all responsibilities with regard to function, instead it tries to redeem them, bring it back to where it's supposed to be, where the husband is over the, over the wife. Um, okay, so instead of trying to abolish these distinctions, the Scripture seeks to redeem them. Get, the more we are made into the image of God, the more we are being made in the likeness of God, we are. Uh, the more that these relationships will look more like the Scriptures intend, a husband over his wife. Trish. Yeah. Do you need that? Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, our job that's not our job, really. It's not to go out into the culture and change everything that they do and make it godly. Well, they're ungodly people. They're going to be ungodly. Um, so our job primarily is to change ourselves and to change the community of believers that we've covenanted ourselves together with to try to get ourselves more in line with the Scriptures. And amazingly, what God does when we do that is the culture actually starts to change based on our... Um, you know, but but that's not our main goal. And I think that's a great point that Trish brought up. All right, number six. We need to. We're halfway through. And we only have a few minutes left. Doesn't Jesus liberate uh, women? That is, uh, doesn't he ex- explode these hierarchical notions? Because Jesus does seem to be revolutionary in many ways. Um, you know, trying to cut through the sinful pride of people. To be, you know, the culture at that time was very belittling of women. Uh, very much different. Than, uh, than most of our culture. And, uh, and so in many ways, Jesus did exalt women in, in, in a sense that they deserve to be honored because they were also made in the image of God. Uh, in fact, I think it's at the end of Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel that you have a whole list of women that helped out, uh, that, that were there at the foot of the cross. You know, you don't have any mention of, of any men. And so... I think those are, those types of things are set up for us to just get shocked as a reader that you know what women are not to be minimized or or um, 
or undermined, but they are a part of God's created order. But at the same time, Jesus does not liberate their responsibility um, in a way that would overturn these gender distinctions. Okay, he, um, he still promoted loving headship of men, the servant leadership of men, that men ought to be living with their wives, like Peter says, in an understanding way, that, that they ought to be living in, in respect of God's desires for them to lead their wives in a proper way. And, um, and so Jesus was always going back to what was the created order, how did God set it up, and what have we done to destroy it? Let's see what we can do to get back to there. All right. Number seven, what about Deborah? Deborah's leadership of God's people in the book of Job seems to undercut the idea that, that women cannot be pastors, that which we have suggested. Um, but what you need to recognize about that is, yes, Deborah did step up in a place where men were not apparently capable or willing to lead in that situation. But remember, she's a head of state. She's not the head of you know, Israel, so there's no church at that time. So that's not suggesting that that was okay for, for you know, if Deborah were in the church age, that she would be able to lead a church. That's not the point of, of the text at all. And I think that's a, a, a stretch of what that text intends. Okay? So she was not a spiritual leader necessarily. Uh, you know, if we wanted to try to... Um, if we wanted to try to make a, a comparison between a pastor in the New Testament and a, let's say a pastor in the Old Testament, maybe more like a priest, a priest, and uh, and Deborah was no way acting in that function. All right, number eight. We need need to get through these last three here because we don't have another class to clean up all the loose ends. All right, when uh, this is from a egalitarian perspective, when you say a woman shouldn't follow her husband into sin, what's left of headship? Okay, Who's to say what act of leadership is sinful enough for her to disobey? To her to, for her to obey God rather than man? Like, when is that? And obviously, you understand, especially if you've been in this sort of relationship, even if, you know, just your, yourself to your parents, you recognize that this is a very delicate, delicate situation. There's tons of ambiguities within these relationships that that are hard to iron out and so it's going to require a you know a lot of wisdom but the general demeanor of men should be to lead in a loving way and for women to be subject to their husband at husbands as they are to the lord and uh so in a good marriage you're going to have both of these things happening okay in a in a good marriage you're going to have both a husband leading in a loving way, thinking of her interests over his own, treating her as he wants to be treated, and you have a wife who is not wanting to undermine his authority. That is, that he's seeking to... um, give you all these here. He's seeking to honor her um, in such a way that would would be uh, in keeping with the Scriptures. So, let me just read these for you. The head bears primary responsibility, but in a fallen world, the head has the potential for sin and ill treatment, right? Uh, we could say abuse. Abuse is kind of a strong word, but, but that's the idea, ill treatment, that, that he has 
you know how it is at work that, you know, sometimes when people get in a position of a supervisory role over you, they, it goes to their head a little bit and it turns into abuse, right? They become domineering. And that's the same way that it can happen in marriage. So, so in those cases, here's what the egalitarians would say. Well, since husbands are sinful in that way, then I don't have to obey him at all, right? But in those cases, what we don't want to do or ladies, what you don't want to do, or no matter who you are in, in submission, okay, so if you have a husband over, okay, has a responsibility over his wife, that is a responsibility of leadership, just because the husband is sinful, and he is, that doesn't mean we destroy the whole structure of it. Okay, well, God, here, here's the extreme of this. God doesn't know what He's doing, and so I'm not going to obey him in any way. I'm going to move myself to a position that is in equality with him. Instead, what we ought to do is find out what it is that is pleasing to the Lord and say, when he is sinful, okay, in most of the areas that that um, wives disagree with their husbands, okay, maybe not most, but many of the areas that wives disagree with their husbands are not spiritual-related issues. They're issues of preference. And so when you exalt yourself to a place where I'm not going to submit to him in this case, then then you've actually defied the, um, the, the authority structure that's been set up for you to protect you, to help you, and to honor God in that. And so here's what ought to happen. That if you are going to usurp any authority, whether it is wife to her husband or an employee to an employer or you know, whoever, if you're going to usurp the authority that God has rightfully placed over you, then you need to have clear biblical evidence that you ought to, okay? And when I say usurp that authority, I'm not saying to usurp the authority structure. That's different. I'm saying to usurp his authority in that way. So let me just try to give an example. If he says, you know, you're not going to church at all. Okay, you're not going to you're not going to spend time with those people. As a wife, you have a responsibility to obey God over man. Now, obviously, you want to appeal to Him in those ways. Don't make it a big deal. Like I can do what God says, and I'm never going to listen to you. Rather, it should be done in a very um, uh, non-confrontational way, uh, like you would appeal to your father. Okay, this is how you ought to. To, to talk to your husband and say, listen, I know that you say that I shouldn't be doing this, but, um, you know, God is ultimately in control of everything and He calls for me to obey Him in this way. And I don't want to usurp your authority. I don't want to. But in this case, I have to. Okay, and I hope you can understand that. Obviously, it's going to be a, a, a point of tension, you know, with regard to believing husbands, this should ha- be happening less. But again, men are sinful and they will sometimes lead you in the wrong direction. But the ideal situation is when a man is lovingly leading and a woman is willing to follow in a way that, that the Scriptures have set up. What about uh, domestic abuse? Doesn't headship promote domestic abuse? abuse but let me just quickly say that headship is not lording it over. It's not domineering. It should not be. Okay, that's not what the idea of headship. Just like with Christ, that's not the way it is with His church. How does Christ 
lead His church. Okay, obviously, we know that He laid down His life for us, that He serves us in a sense, and that's the way it ought to be with men to their husbands, or men to their wives, that they ought to live with their wives in such a way that, that they're um, sacrificially giving of themselves and leadership. All right, what about God's calling? Um, I hope you can see through the argument on this one quickly. That is, if God has called a woman to be a pastor, how are we as a church to say no? Right? If someone came into our church and said, I've been called to be a pastor, try and stop me. Or, you know, you have to accept me. What do we say to her? Okay. Well, you have some qualifications to, to fit into in order to be called to be a pastor. And you are supposed to be the husband of one wife. And we don't see that. We see the authority structure in the church that you can't have a position of authority over a man, First Timothy 2, and you can't teach a man. So what are you going to do as a pastor? Okay, so it doesn't make sense in any of those ways. And just because a person is called doesn't mean that it's from God. Okay, so here's the assumption in the question. If God called a woman to be a pastor, that's the assumption that He did. And the point is He didn't. Right? Just like here. What if someone came to our church and said, God has called me He subjectively told me that I need to get my infant baptized. What will we say to him? Right? I'm sorry. That's not what the Scriptures teach. And that wasn't God calling you. Okay? Hopefully we would be gentle with them and and loving. But but just because someone says that God has called them them to a specific position does not mean... the, 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 The primary way that we find out whether that's right or not is we do what? You go to the Scriptures, right? What do the Scriptures say? It's not your subjective calling. Okay, that, that can waver based on our understanding of the Scriptures, based on our you know, upbringing and all these other things. What is most important is what the Scriptures teach. All right, we don't really have time for questions, but if you have some anything burning, quickly. Yes, Vicki. Yeah, yeah. so if, if that were the case, if you were liberating and completely leveling the grounds of, of functional authority, then, yeah, then why don't we see them as leaders in the church in that way? It's a good point. Bill? <laughs> That's good. Oh yeah. Um and while while I'm doing that, here's nine for you. Um then let me know when you're done. I'll go back to six. While you're doing that, let me just say something about next week. We're starting up a thirteen week seri- series on parenting. And some of you are thinking, Okay, I'm long past that stage. And then others of you are thinking, I'm far away from that stage or I've never been there and I never will be type thing. But here's what, um, here's what you ought to think. Okay, this is similar to what we said in, um, with regard to um, single ladies, single older ladies teaching younger married women. Okay, when we got to that section in Titus chapter 2, I said, 
that it would be completely appropriate for a single woman to actually teach a younger married woman in the ways of her marriage. And we might say, well, how could you possibly do that? I mean, as a single person, how could they possibly have anything good to say? But here's the thing. The point, uh, her authority to teach as a single woman, uh, a younger married woman, is not because of her experience, is it? It's because of what? Because of the authority that she has from the Scripture. So she's saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God. This is what a marriage looks like. I haven't gone through it. I understand that. And so I'm going to speak to you in a humble way. But I have some things that I can help you with. Okay, Some things that I see that maybe you don't see because you're blinded to because you're in the situation. I said that was completely appropriate. I hope you agreed with me. And what I'm saying to you is that with parenting, it is the same way. Okay, That all of us need to have a right view of how we ought to bring up children, either if you're long past that stage or far away from that stage. Because uh, we all have a responsibility to help one another out. No matter what position in life you are in, you need to understand this so that you can help other people who are parenting, even if you don't have. And specifically for you grandparents, this is a great time in your life to help raise your grandchildren in a godly way. Because sometimes children... You know, they, they haven't seen as much as you have as a grandparent because you've already gone through it. And, uh, and the best way for us to get an understanding of how to do that is from the Scriptures. So I hope and encourage you to be here for that. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Your grace in helping us to, to, uh, to gently deal with these issues that can be a little bit divisive and uh, sometimes confrontational. Thank You for the spirit of of humility on the part of of the people that have come to this class. And we pray that you'd help us to go from this place with a teachable spirit and one that is willing to continue to learn, but also to be grounded in the firm foundation of the Scriptures. Thank you that your Word gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.